He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Lord God, as we reflect on the preaching of John the Baptist, the voice that cries in the wilderness, we claim the promises of the word that we just heard read, that from your prophet Zephaniah, that you are the Lord who quiets us by your love and that you are Lord, the Lord that changes our shame into praise. And that our psalmist said that you are the one who is even now speaking peace to your faithful people. So I pray, Lord, that as we look at the words of John the Baptist, that we would hear his preaching as good news meant to wake us up to the reality of the one who is coming to save us, to gather us to himself. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock, and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, it is the third Sunday of Advent. We've got three candles lit, and you can see that the light is growing. And that's the point. As we wait in expectation, the light grows. When it will burst forth the, the light of un, the uncreated life of light of the incarnate Son coming to us on Christmas Day. But we're still in the middle, middle of the season of waiting. Advent is a season of waiting, but it is also a season of wakefulness. Those are the two great exhortations of the season of Advent, learning to wait and learning to be awake. There's a hymn that is often sung in this season, and the opening line is, Sleepers wake, a voice astounds us. Or in German, the original German, Wacket auf, ruft uns die Stimme. That will wake you up. Okay, that's to get the blood going. The German will get the blood going. We're supposed to wake up. To us speaks the voice, literally. Sleepers wake, a voice astounds us. There is a voice crying in the wilderness. We heard from that voice last week. Dave talked about John the Baptist. He's here for part two. This is the sequel. This is a case where the sequel might be better than the original. We'll have to see. First blood, part two.
John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. Um, what does this voice say? That's what our text is about today. What does John the Baptist, the voice that cries in the wilderness, what does he have to say to us? The hymn, Sleepers Wake, goes like this, the first verse. Sleepers wake, a voice astounds us. The shout of rampart guards surrounds us. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Midnight's peace, their cry has broken. Their urgent summons clearly spoken. Dave spoke last week about John the Baptist standing in the line of the prophets. Our collect for today talks about the voice of the prophets that come to us to speak a word to wake us up. And one of the images that the Old Testament gives us of the prophet is the prophet as the watchman, the one who stands on the rampart, watching for what's coming on the horizon that wakes the people up to alert them to what's happening. We see Habakkuk describing himself as a watchman. We see the prophet Ezekiel describing himself in this way. And this, too, is the role of John the Baptist. He sees what's coming. And so he cries out to tell the people, there is one who is stronger who is coming after me. So wake up. Midnight's peace, their cry has broken, their urgent summons clearly spoken. So whose voice is this, the voice that astounds us? It's the voice of John the Baptist. And what he has to say to us, this voice, is that you cannot rely on the things that you think that matter, your past, your works, your pedigree. It's time to wake up. Why? Because the one who is stronger is coming. There are things in life that lull us to sleep, that get us into a pattern of just going through the motions. And when we get into that pattern, it's time for us to wake up. And John says, wake up, because there is an ax, there is a fire, and there is a reckoning. And we need to pay attention. The ax, John says, is laid to the root of the tree. This is a radical statement by a radical man. The word radical literally refers to the root. To be a true radical means to go back to the origin of things, to go to the very root of things, to go back to what is foundational, to go back to what is fundamental. They are in the fundamental place, which is the wilderness. The wilderness, the desert, the place where God forms his people, where in the silence and the desolation of the desert, he speaks his word to his people. And so John says, go back to the beginning, go back to the root, because the ax is laid to the root. And everything that is not fruitful is going to be cut away. A time of testing and trial is here, and we have to go back to the basics. Everything's shaken to its core, and we need to figure out what really matters. I hope that resonates with you as a word to our moment (laughs) where things are shaken were things that we trusted in, things that we came to expect, things, things that we took for granted have been shaken and taken away. And so that we would hear these words to the people of Israel as words to us and hear John's words of calling them back to this new place, a place that is beyond their past and beyond their pedigree. Because this voice tells us that there is one who is stronger than him, who is coming. By saying that he is coming, he is orienting them towards the future. He wants them to look to the horizon, look to the future, instead of being drowned in the past. 
And it may seem paradoxical, but going to the root of things is one of the only ways that can truly orient us to the future. By stripping things away, it's one of the only ways that we can actually look up and look toward the one who is coming. So one of the questions that this gospel passage asks us is how do we both as individuals and as a community of people relate to the past? There's a healthy relationship to the past in which the past is a treasure trove that inspires us, challenges us, reminds us of the faithfulness of God. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says of the Old Testament, these things are written for you so that you might be encouraged and built up. That's a healthy relationship to the past where we look to those who have gone before us to inspire us, to stir us up. And if we relate to the past in that way, it can push us toward the future. I mean, we're, we're Anglicans. We're doing traditional things. We're, we're doing things we've done in the past. We like to talk about the past. We like to talk about history. We're having an adult ed class. We're talking about the church fathers. And we're doing that not to live in the past, but to hear a voice from the past that can pull us towards the future. That is a healthy relationship to the past. But there's an unhealthy relationship to the past as well, where the past becomes something that paralyzes us. Because we live in the past, we can't move forward. Because what has happened to us in the past, whether it was good or whether it was bad, seems more real to us than the present. The good of the past can paralyze us because we are vainly striving to recreate some perceived golden age. It was so good back then, why can't we get back then? Remember when we had Solomon's temple? Remember when all the sacrifices were going? Remember when Rome wasn't oppressing us? Let's get back to that golden age. So the good of the past can become a means of paralyzing us. And of course, as many, if not all of us know, the bad of the past can become its own kind of paralysis too. The things that have hurt us, the things that have wounded us, can paralyze us because we come to believe that there can be no future beyond that wounding, that that wounding is the only reality for us. But what John the Baptist says is a word for us now. This voice speaks now. And by speaking now in the presence, he's calling us into the future. He says, the one who is stronger is coming. So John says to them, you can't rely on the past. The only way forward is into the future. And in a similar way, he says, you can't rely on your pedigree either. What does he say to them? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Our pedigree will save us. Pedigree is another version of the fast, right? This is where we came from. These are our people. And there's a healthy way, again, to relate to that, where that inspires us, where it informs us, where we understand where we came from. But for them, it becomes another mode of paralysis. We don't have to do anything else. We're Abraham's children. We're the people of the covenant. And John has a different thing to say to them. <laughs> he says, don't mistake your pedigree. Don't mistake being a child of Abraham with the fruit that demonstrates you're keeping 
with repentance. Simply being Abraham's child is not the fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, we wouldn't necessarily say, well, we are Abraham's children. We wouldn't appeal to our pedigree in that way, but we have our own ways of appealing to our pedigree. It could just be, I come from a Christian family. I come from a Christian nation, or I was educated in a certain way, in a certain place at a certain time. We can have our own sense of entitlement, our own sense of enlightenment. We can have our own sense that we are on the right side of things. And those are all ways of wrongly clinging to our pedigree. And what John says to us is, that's all well and good, but are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? What is the actual nature of the tree? Does it bear fruit? The other questions are actually a distraction from that fundamental question. Is the tree bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? This helps us understand what is radical about John's baptism. John essentially takes what is a conversion rite. If you were a Gentile who wanted to become part of the nation of Israel, these cleansing rituals that you would undergo to convert, John takes that, he brings it into the desert and says, Basically, you all need to start over. You need to be converted again. Why? Because it's a new moment. It's a new age. The one who is stronger is coming. And that is radical. He's saying your pedigree won't save you. He's saying your past will not save you. When they say we are children of Abraham, they are appealing both to the past and the pedigree, their pedigree. And this represents a deeply human impulse because we all do it. We all have our own versions of living in the past, whether the good version of the past or the bad version of the past. And we all have the impulse to return to what has worked before. Right? I've done it. I'm sure you have too. But John says, no, you need to turn to the one who can remake you. And that, to me, is what repentance is. Repentance is surrendering to the one who can actually make a difference. Repentance is surrendering to the one who can remake us in his image. Our human impulse is to say the problem is out there or the problem is with them, whoever them happens to be at any given moment. But John cuts through all of this and says, no, the problem, dear ones, is with you. It's in your hearts. Fleming Rutledge in her book on Advent says this, in Advent where faith in mankind comes to an end, the message of Christmas begins. Has our faith in mankind run out? <laughs> when it does, that's when we know that there's a light that is coming that we cannot give to ourselves. And John speaks that word, and in speaking that word, he orients us and them to the future, and he seeks to move them out of the past. Moving beyond the question of well, what has worked before to the question of what do I do now? And they ask a version of this question. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They want to respond. It's a good question. And what does he say? Well, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What needs to be cut away? What needs to be pruned? What is it in ourselves, in each one of us, that keeps us from bearing fruit? 
to go back to the prophecy that announced John the Baptist's coming, what are the valleys that need to be raised up? And what are the mountains that need to be cast down? That dynamic is within each one of us, and it's within our society at large. It plays out in the drama of our own hearts and in the drama of history, that valleys need to be raised up and mountains need to be laid low so that the way can be prepared for the one who is coming. So those cosmic images have something to say about history, but they have something to say to each one of us too. And it can all sound very distant and it can sound very removed from the everyday. And if it does, I would say take courage because the fruits of repentance actually have an immensely practical shape. What does he say? What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share them with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. To the crowd in general, he says, fruit in keeping with repentance looks like generosity. It looks like loving your neighbor. It looks like taking what you have and sharing it with those who don't. To the tax collectors, he says this. They say, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you authorized to do. To the tax collectors who are compromised and despised, it's not quit your job. It's do your job with integrity. There's a way to be a tax collector with integrity. Imagine that. To the soldiers, and these are probably those who were in the service of the high priest. These are not necessarily Roman uh, soldiers based on the word that's used here. But they were also feared and they were also corrupted. In fact, we get our word shakedown from this passage. <laughs> the verb is literally shakedown. <laughs> And he says, stop shaking people down. <laughs> to the soldiers who are feared and corrupted, do not use your power in a way that advances your own end. Literally stop using your power to shake people down. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These are immensely practical things. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on Luke says this, and I think, I really want you to hear this. He says, repentance then is not seen in your doing some extraordinary feat, but in your living ordinary life in a transformed way. What is repentance? It is living ordinary life in a transformed way. That you can just be part of the crowd and you can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That you can be a tax collector and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That you can be a soldier and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That you can live ordinary life in a transformed way. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now here's where it gets really difficult for us because we tend to hear these words backwards. It's do the thing, but a tree can't do anything. A tree just is. And when he's saying bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he's saying the tree has to change. If it's a bad tree, it has to become a good tree. If it's a good tree already, it needs to be pruned to bear more fruit. And those are not things that we can do for ourselves. It is not actions that change the tree, it is repentance. The fruit is merely a demonstration of that inner work. The fruit displays the result of some deeper interior process. What's going on at the level of the root? 
What nourishment is the tree drawing so that it can bear fruit in its season? So our temptation when we hear John's words is to go straight to the fruit. But we can't do this, and we can't ask whether we are truly bearing fruit in keeping with repentance until we have asked that deeper question, what's going on in here? Has that deeper interior work taken place? The basic question that we all want to ask is the question the crowd asks, which is, what shall we do? And that's an important question. It does take us to the root. But there is an even deeper question, which is, who shall we be? This past summer, I took a, a prayer retreat up in Louisville at Montserrat. It was a Jesuit-led uh, prayer retreat. Three days of silence, which is pretty much my idea of paradise. Um, yeah. And it was a really great time. Um, and when I first got there, the lake was flooded. It was there, flooded the whole time. And I looked out on the lake, and there were these trees that were half submerged or even three-quarters submerged in the lake. And I was like, oh, that, that's interesting. And I kept thinking about the trees throughout the prayer time. And one of the retreat directors, Father Vo, at the end of the retreat, he said something so interesting. He said, y'all are going to want to leave from here and do a bunch of stuff. Don't do anything. What did he say? He said, be a good tree. And when he said, be a good tree, I thought of that tree in the lake that was submerged, that was almost drowned. And I thought about COVID, all the things that I've been through in the last 18 months, two years up to that point, a time of flooding, seemingly being flooded and overwhelmed. And I thought of that tree that even though it was almost drowning, it still was bearing fruit. And these words have come with me, and I want to share them with you, which is don't try to do anything. Be a good tree. What does it take to be a good tree? Well, we have to be transformed. John says there is one who is coming. I'm not worthy to loosen his sandal. He's stronger than I. I'm the last of something. He's the first of something. I'm the best man. He's the bridegroom. That's what he says in the Gospel of John. You want the bridegroom. I'm washing you with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He will do the interior work necessary for you to become a good tree. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. That's what John says. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what John says, John the Baptist says in the gospel of John. The best man comes with the baptism of water, but the bridegroom comes with the spirit and with fire. He is here to purify us and to refine us. It's interesting that what gets John the Baptist in trouble and thrown in jail is that he calls out someone for a false marriage. Herod married the wrong person. 
It was not legal. Luke is drawing attention to the idea that Jesus is the true bridegroom. In fact, this image of the sandals, I'm not, worried, I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals, maybe it puts you in mind when we talked about Ruth a few weeks ago. And the whole bit at the end with the exchange of the sandals. Part of what may be going on in this passage when John talks about the sandals is, yes, it's an image of humility, but it's also him saying, I'm not the kinsman redeemer. I'm not the one who's come to redeem you. He is coming and he is stronger than I because he baptizes with fire and with the spirit. And that's what makes this good news. It tells us that John came preaching good news. Sometimes hard words are good words if they're true words. We've heard hard words before that are not true, that can wound us in ways that maybe we're still getting over. But if you can hear a hard word that is a true word and you can receive it as such, then that word can become life. It can actually change what's going on in your heart. That's why John the Baptist's words are good news for us because there is actually one who is stronger, who can transform us from within so that we can become good trees instead of trying to do stuff. The doing is important to the extent that it manifests that work within, but if that work has not happened in here, then we're just playing games. The second verse of that hymn, Sleepers Wake, a voice astounds us, goes like this. The time has come, O maidens wise, rise up and give us light. The bridegroom is in sight. Alleluia, your lamps prepare and hasten there that you the wedding feast may share. The bridegroom comes to make us his bride. It's all over Luke's gospel, this image of us being invited to a wedding feast. That's what salvation looks like. First, he says, children of Abraham come in. Then it's to everyone, to everyone everywhere. Come, come to the wedding feast. Come meet the bridegroom. That's what we're waiting for. Advent means waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the bridegroom. We're waiting for the one who baptizes us with, with his spirit and with fire, who can change us from within. And that is what repentance is. It is simply surrender. Dave said it over the last few weeks, is the Lord's expectation when we come in here is for us to simply receive. That's true. Repentance is us receiving the reality that we cannot save ourselves and that there is one who can. It's surrendering to him. It's laying it down. It's saying, I need you to remake me because I cannot remake myself. And sometimes it takes someone saying, the ax is at the root of the tree for us to wake up. I know for many, the last many months have been an opportunity to wake up. Is, is this the life I really want? Is this the job I really want? What's going on in my relationships? Sometimes it takes trial and testing. Sometimes it takes going to the desert to be woken up. But there is a place beyond the desert, the place where the streams flow, where there's a promise of abundance. And that's where the bridegroom wants to take us. 
So let's close and pray together. And I simply want us to reflect, maybe on the last week, or maybe in the last month, maybe on the last year, I just invite you to close your eyes and think about all the things that you may have been trying to do to change your circumstances, to take control. And as you have that in your mind, I would just invite you to simply imagine that it's in your hands and that you're laying it at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of the bridegroom, asking him to take it. Lord, we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but we don't want to skip the part where we surrender to you, where we ask you, Lord, to remake us. Would you remake us in your image? Would you make us look like you? Would you help us hear the voice that calls us to behold you, to know you, to love you? Would you help us, Lord, to be good trees, not to do a bunch of stuff for the sake of doing stuff, but to be something and to simply abide in you to simply rest and trust that you are the one who brings forth fruit in us. Lord, we lay these things at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.